Brothers and sisters, we are not lost sheep wandering about in this world without meaning or purpose. No, like that song that we just sang, we know that we belong to our Savior, the great shepherd of the sheep, who not only redeemed us, but also leads us, preserves us, and prepares us for eternal glory. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let's now listen to his voice in the scriptures. So please open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will read from verse 14 all the way to chapter 7, verse 1. Listen carefully now to the word of the Lord. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear your word this morning, we pray that you would remind us who we are in Christ and cause our hearts to rejoice that we belong to you. Help us understand the beauty and the joy of holiness so that we would see with new eyes the ugliness and the misery of sin and the false gospels of this world. Spirit of God, shine upon us and make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If, at some point in your Christian life, you ask the question, can a Christian date or marry an unbeliever? Chances are that some well-meaning brother or sister might have responded to you by saying, well, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is very clear about that. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, so don't do it. Now, if you listen to them, I'm very glad that you did. But 2 Corinthians 6.14 is not talking about marriage. A more straightforward verse would be 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, where Paul is talking about marriage, uh, particularly the marriage of Christian widows. And he says that they are free to marry whoever they want only in the Lord. In other words, only someone who is a believer. Uh, someone who is in Christ. 
Now, this doesn't mean that there are no principles or truths in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that cannot be applied to the discussion of dating and marriage. They most certainly can. But we must be careful how we handle and interpret the Word of God. Now, Paul's opponents at Corinth were terrible at this. Instead of working hard to understand the gospel that he preached, they were bent on tampering with God's word. And Paul calls these men peddlers of God's word in 2 Corinthians 2.17. All they cared about was filling their pockets. These false teachers were Jewish men who had crept into the church and promoted themselves as apostles. They were able to gain a hearing because of their oratory skills. They were powerful communicators who knew how to impress their audiences. They had strong personalities, and they boasted in external appearances like wealth and power and status. And they even claimed to receive special visions from God. And they were fascinated with the glory of the Mosaic Covenant. You see, these men embodied all those values that Corinthian culture valued. Plus, they carried with them impressive letters of recommendation. Uh, these were a group of men who, who did not want to give up their worldly ways, and yet they wanted to capitalize on this young church by forging an ungodly union of their ideas with the churches. But to do that, they had to first shake the church's apostolic foundations. And so they turned many of the, their, the members against Paul, and they tried to discredit Paul as an apostle because his ministry, they said, was marked by suffering. But God was gracious to the Corinthians, and through Paul's tearful letter, a majority of these members repented of these ideas and were reconciled to Paul. But there was still an unrepentant minority that was under the influence of these false apostles. Why, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul, by implication, states that these men were cunning men who had resorted to disgraceful and underhanded ways. And so Paul was greatly concerned for the spiritual well-being of the church. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that not only were his opponents proclaiming a different gospel, they were proclaiming a different Jesus. And so these members were in grave spiritual danger of abandoning the true gospel and, and falling away. Just think about that. To proclaim a, a different Jesus is to proclaim a different God. And that is idolatry. If you cook up your own version, if you cook up your own cultural flavor of Christianity, it's no longer Christianity. It's idolatry. It may have an external appearance, a form of godliness, but zero power to transform you, to grow you in holiness or Christ-likeness. And so as Paul calls these members back to the true apostolic gospel, he not only holds out the glory of the gospel and the new covenant, he also points to the work of the Spirit in their hearts as sufficient evidence that he was a true ambassador of Christ, an ambassador to whom had been entrusted a ministry of reconciliation. And so he urges the Corinthians, that, that unrepentant minority, he urges them in this letter to be reconciled to him as an expression of their reconciliation to God. You see, these members had grown cold 
towards Paul, cold in their affection towards him. And so Paul exhorts them to open their hearts to him, to agree with him and be affectionate towards him as their spiritual father, someone who led them to the Lord. You see that in verse 13 of chapter 6. Now, in our passage this morning, Paul, immediately after verse 13, commands the Corinthians to separate from these false apostles, and he tells them to do that by pointing to two things. He reminds them first of their position in Christ. That's point number one. And then he reminds them of the promises of God. That's point number two. So separate from them for these two reasons, their position in Christ and the promises of God. Let's first consider their position in Christ. This is why Paul says to them, look at verse 14, do not, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that's a command given right after he tells them to widen their hearts. Now, some commentators get really confused at this point. Some of them say, oh, yeah, this, this doesn't work. This messes up the flow of what Paul is arguing for. This, this cannot be Paul. This is someone else, some friend of his who, who might have inserted his own advice into the letter. And then Paul starts writing again at chapter 7, uh, verse 2. Others think that Paul is speaking of unbelievers in general, that all of a sudden while writing, he remembered all the stuff he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians. You remember all that stuff about idolatry in Corinthian temples, eating food offered to idols, causing weaker brothers to stumble, uh, the cultic worship that included sex with temple prostitutes. And so he remembers all of that and, and calls them to disassociate themselves from such people. But if you look at the context carefully, it ought to become clear that Paul is talking about his opponents, those false apostles and any or anyone else who were leading the Corinthians astray. If you remember in chapter 3, as he speaks of the greater glory of the new covenant in 3.15, Paul hints that these men are still veiled. They're spiritually dead. And the reason he gives for that veiling in chapter 4, verse 4, is that the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, he says. You know that, that little word, that article, the unbelievers, suggests that he has some people in mind. And in chapter 6, let's not forget Here's another contextual consideration. Let's not forget that Paul is calling these Corinthians to be reconciled to God by being reconciled to him and the apostolic gospel. Look at verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. He tells them not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the time to reconcile, he says. Then he points to his own life and ministry and tells them that he did not put any obstacles in anyone's way, nor had he wronged anyone. There was no fault in his ministry. Paul, by the grace of God, had endured all his afflictions and had done so in holiness to the effect that God's transforming gospel power was evidently seen in all his weaknesses. Now, here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. 
God's reconciling grace produces what? Godly affections. And Paul says our hearts are wide open. In verse 13, he says, widen your hearts also. Now jump ahead and look at chapter 7, verse 2. What does he say? Make room in your hearts for us. So think of those two verses. Verse 13, widen your hearts. Chapter 7, verse 2, make room in your hearts. And in between that, 6.13 and 7.2, we have our passage. 6.14 to 7.1. And how does it begin? With a command. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Which tells you contextually that Paul is still talking about the reconciliatory process. He's still talking about not receiving God's grace in vain. If the reconciling grace of God, the grace of the gospel that we read about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, if it's working in your hearts by the power of the gospel, then in order to be reconciled to me and my gospel, in order for you to once again have warm, loving affections towards me, you need to purify yourself from everything that's contaminating this relationship. You need to break fellowship with these false apostles. This is the obstacle that you need to get rid of. I've put no obstacles before you. This is what is preventing you from opening your hearts wide to us. In order to make room in their hearts for, for Paul, the rightful owner, they need to evict the squatters. You see how that works? So this imperative, the command, is always grounded in the indicative. It's always grounded in the grace of God, in the true apostolic gospel. Beloved, this is an important component of repentance and reconciliation. You need to understand this. This is a holy component. Because God's reconciling grace in the gospel is holy. You know this. A Christian man who has committed adultery, cannot be truly repentant and hope to be reconciled to his wife if he still has an intimate friendship with the woman he slept with. And so Paul, addressing this unrepentant minority, tells them, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, namely these false apostles who were preaching a different gospel. But what does it mean to be unequally yoked? Well, the word that is translated as unequally yoked, one word in Greek, heterozygontis, means the, the joining or the binding together of two different things. Two different things or, or species or breeds. It is to be incongruously joined or mismatched, as the NIV puts it. And that metaphor comes to us from the Old Testament, a couple of texts, in fact. In Leviticus 19, in order to set apart the people of Israel and all their practices, the Lord gives them specific commands, what to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, what not to wear. And this was to teach them that the Lord was holy and that he wanted his redeemed people to be holy to be distinct from the pagan nations around them. And one of those commands was to prohibit crossbreeding. Leviticus 19, verse 19, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. 
You know, that principle was applied even to their agricultural practices. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Those two are of a different kind. They're of a different breed. One moves slower, one moves faster. They will be unequally yoked. You know, if you hitch two dogs to a sled, you know, one a big German shepherd and, and one a small poodle, you know which direction that sled is going to be pulled in. And yet the point of these commands was to teach Israel to be holy, to, uh, to not adopt the beliefs and the practices of the nations around them. Because if they did that, they would no longer worship the Lord, their Redeemer. We know this because this is how their idolatry is described. By the way, this is also why the Lord told them not to marry foreign women, those outside the covenant community. See, the Lord wasn't against inter-ethnic marriages. No, he knew that if his people would marry pagan women, they would draw that sled in a different direction. You know, their hearts would be drawn away from the Lord and towards paganism. And that's what happened to King Solomon, didn't it? Look at Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3. Numbers 25, 1-3 While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. It all began with a simple invitation. Come join our religious feasts. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. There's our word, yoked, joined. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Do not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. Do not be or do not become joined to these false apostles because they are going to pull you away into their unbelief. You see, they were, they were already heavily influenced by these men. And Paul was concerned that their trajectory would end in disaster. Friends, I want you to see that this is a gracious and life-saving command that Paul gives. You see, Paul commands these Corinthians because he's confident that despite what had happened, they would heed his words. He sees them as believers who have been led astray. But how they respond to his words in this letter will determine whether they are in Christ or not. Which is why at the end of his letter he says in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. See this command to break fellowship with these false apostles, not just with their doctrine, but with them. With them. This command is ultimately grounded in who they are. In other words, our identity will determine our close relationships. Our identity will determine our close relationships. Now notice the reason Paul gives for this command. The reason is this. The church and these men, they are a mismatch. They don't fit. But Paul helps them understand this by powerfully framing it in the form of five rhetorical questions. Look at verse 14 again. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? For, that's the reason, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Uh, what is shared between these two things? That's what the word partnership means. What, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What's the answer? Absolutely nothing. Now remember, Paul is talking about persons. He's talking about disassociating with these false apostles, and he assigns two terms to two groups, righteousness to the Corinthians and lawlessness to these false apostles. Beloved, here's what you need to understand. By the grace of God, righteousness is who we are. Do you see that in the text? Righteousness is first and foremost not what we do. It is first and foremost who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He, that's God, made Him, Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, by faith in His saving work, we might become the righteousness of God. God imputes or credits the perfect righteousness of His Holy Son to our account so that we might be reconciled to God. This is our holy standing our holy identity in Jesus Christ. Before we ever do any good works of faith, before we pursue righteousness, before we progressively grow in holiness or sanctification, we are first positionally set apart or sanctified by His grace. In Christ Jesus, we are declared to be holy. Saints, members of the household of God, not because of our works, but because of Christ's work. By grace, we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. And despite their fascination with the old covenant law, what term does Paul use for these false teachers? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. You know, these men could not see that Christ was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. They were still veiled, and their lives demonstrated that they had no power to overcome their sins. They were boasting in their flesh in the things that the world found impressive and not in Christ alone. And Paul says, the name of that club is lawlessness, marked by disgraceful and underhanded ways. Beloved, anyone who is not in Christ, even the most morally upright believer, is lawlessness. That is his standing. Forget about what he has done or not done. That's who he is in the Lord's sight. Because he has rejected the only way a man may be justified before God through Jesus Christ alone. And whatever does not proceed from faith in Jesus, any work, any deed, whatever does not proceed from faith in Him is sin. And do you remember what John says sin is? 1 John 3, 4, sin is what? Lawlessness. To be unequally yoked with unbelievers is to enter into a sharing with what they believe and how they live. 
You see, this is not a command to distance ourselves from all unbelievers. Now, that would be impossible and ludicrous. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 10, then you would have to go out of the world. Right? Just get into a spaceship and leave. Even in 1 Corinthians 5, he's clear about what he means. He doesn't tell them not to associate with the sexually immoral of the world. Rather, he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, do not associate with someone who calls themselves a Christian and yet continues to sin, to be greedy or sexually immoral or a drunkard. Do not eat with such a one, he says. See, the command to not be unequally yoked is to not have any part in their ungodly beliefs and ungodly practices and ungodly passions and ungodly purposes and ungodly worship. You know, the Old Testament puts it like this. Psalm 1.1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or as he puts it in verse 7, by way of summary, he says, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. He's saying the same thing. You know, this verse is not about unbelievers outside the church. Though we should not share in their ungodly beliefs and practices either. Rather, this is about those who have crept into the church and are identifying themselves as Christians. In this case, they're identifying themselves as apostles. And Paul says they're really not believers. Don't be unequally yoked with such unbelievers. You know, this is the most spiritually dangerous kind. They sneak into the church. They threaten the unity and the holiness of the church. You know, when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, he warns them that false teachers, fierce wolves, men speaking twisted things would spring up from within the church and draw away disciples. You see, the principle that we find in this command is to have nothing to do with the twisted beliefs and behavior of unbelievers because it will compromise your holiness and your faith. Now, can you take that principle and then apply it to the discussion of dating and marriage? Yes, you can. If that's the principle, then why would you want to endanger your soul and your love for Christ and the holiness of the church by pursuing or, God forbid, marry an unbeliever? enter into a marriage union that is supposed to reflect the glory of the gospel. Why would you do that? But here's the most necessary implication of this text that we as a church should learn. Be careful who you appoint as your leaders. That is the most necessary implication of this text. Be careful who you appoint as your leaders. You see, these men had crept into the membership of the church with leadership credentials, and the fruit of their ministry was strife and division and sin. Do you know how to identify such men? Beloved, do you know what the character qualifications for an elder are? 
You know, Paul outlines these for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. Have you, have you studied those? So that when you vote to appoint an elder that will teach and lead this congregation, you will know whether he meets the biblical qualifications or not. You know, if an elder is to hold firmly to sound doctrine, do you know what sound doctrine is? So that you will be able to discern whether this man believes and practices what is biblical or not. Do you understand our statement of faith? Have you grown in your understanding of each one of those articles and how they apply to your own life? Do you understand the doctrinal distinctives of this church over and against other churches? And can you defend what you believe against alternative or false beliefs of others? You know, if false teachers most often rise up from within the membership and threaten the unity and the holiness of the church, then we have to be very careful about the front door, don't we? About who we baptize, who we bring into membership. Are they genuinely born again? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in their lives? And if we are righteousness, as Paul says, and we must also be concerned about that other great ordinance that Christ has entrusted to the church, and that is the ordinance of church discipline. You see, Jesus expects us to not only be concerned about the front door, who we let in, but also about the back door. It is the holiness of the church that is being highlighted in these questions. Friends, it is the holiness of the church that makes it an effective witness in a perishing world. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Question two. For what fellowship has light with darkness? Answer, none. Friends, believers are light. These false teachers with all their rhetorical skills are what? Darkness. What fellowship, what close association, what intimate communion has light with darkness? At creation, if you remember, the Lord did what? He separated light from the darkness, Genesis 1-4. And in Christ, we are a new creation. It would be improper for us to walk in darkness or fellowship with those who love darkness. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that, that, that there are some things that are proper for saints, they are fitting, and there are some things that are incongruous or improper. Kindness, tenderheartedness, a forgiving spirit, walking in Christ-like love, that's proper. Sexual immorality, covetousness, they should not even be named among you. Filthiness, crude joking, out of place. And then he says this, Ephesians 5, 8 to 9, For at one time you were darkness. Not you were in darkness, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. What makes us light? Not some inner spark of ours, but the saving work of Christ, who is the light of the world. He makes us light through union with him. Paul says, walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. 
Question three, verse 15. What accord, what symphonesis, that's where we get the word symphony, what harmony, what mutual interest has Christ with Belia? You know, this is the sweetest way of describing believers. That we are in Christ. We are joined to him in such a way that Paul identifies the Corinthians with Christ himself. Do not become unequally yoked with these false apostles because Jesus and Belial, that's another name for Satan, they are not in sync with each other. There's nothing alike about these two. One is our creator and savior. The other is a fallen creature. One is infinitely good and the other is desperately evil. You know, nothing could be, just think about this, nothing could be a more polarizing description between Christians and non-Christians than this one. You know, Paul's missionary strategy is not to try and find some common ground between believers and, and unbelievers. No, knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others, he says. Holy people make effective evangelists. You know, John calls unbelievers children of the devil. 1 John 3.10 Satan is the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, whereas the light of Christ has shone into our hearts, enabling us to truly see. Now, this is the only place where the word Belial or Beliar in Greek appears. Now, this is an interesting choice of words because the Corinthians were familiar with the word Satan, but not with Belial. And so you wonder, why does Paul use that word? Strange word. We've never heard of it. But there was one community that was very familiar with this word. The Jewish community. And if he has these Jewish false apostles in mind when he speaks of unbelievers, then we can understand why he's using this name. The use of Belial abounds in Jewish intertestamental literature. The books that were written between the two testaments, they're not inspired, they're not the word of God. But the word Belial appears in, in many of those works. It's a word used to describe Satan, one who opposes God. But it's also a very inflammatory and emotive word. And this reflects a common Jewish practice where they would refer to Satan by personifying a negative word. And that word was the word worthlessness. And so Belial literally means the worthless one. You know, in Deuteronomy 13, verse 13, when Moses warns Israel against idolatry, he warns them of certain, quote-unquote, worthless fellows who might come up from among them and draw the Israelites away to serve other words. The Hebrew word is Belial. The King James Version calls them sons of Belial. So this word was often used by the Jews to, to describe someone or some group who was committing horrible crimes against the Israelite religion or trying to destroy Jewish society altogether by, by drawing them into paganism. And by, ewing, by using this inflammatory word, Paul is identifying these false apostles with Belial. Paul is saying these men identify with Satan and his agenda, and they are trying to divide and destroy the church under Satan's influence. 
If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he speaks clearly about these apostles, he describes them in very similar terms to this passage. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he describes these men's work as being similar to Satan's deception of Eve in the garden. And listen to this, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And if you remember in 1 Corinthians 3.17, Paul warns those who were causing strife and division and were threatening the holiness of the church by their false doctrine. He warns them in this way, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Referring to the church. Question four, or what portion what part, what inheritance does a believer share with an unbeliever? You know, Paul wants the Corinthians to consider their current relationship with these false apostles in light of the end. He wants them to think eschatologically. When Christ returns and sits on his judgment seat, there's going to be a division. These men will not share in our portion, in our eternal inheritance in our land that's literally the, what the word means some translations will will say district yeah. why would you join yourself to people be impressed with their ways and adopt their ways when you know that their destiny will be different from yours beloved think about that when you think about your close relationships who are the most influential voices in your life? Are these godly influences? Members who increase your love for sound doctrine and holiness and self-denying services? Or voices that constantly affirm you and never say anything wrong about you? and draw you away from the church. What do you know about their life and doctrine? Who are the most influential voices in your life? Question five, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Again, the answer is none. We have no consensus with false gods, unlike some people today who try and find some common ground with people who preach false gospels. Paul will not have it. His command is based on the new covenant reality that we have entered into. The church is the temple of God. God's holy presence now dwells with his people. Paul is not talking about the individual believer. He's talking about our corporate identity. And we know that because of the next verse. Why do we have no agreement with idols? Referring to the gods of these false teachers. Verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Living God as opposed to dead idols. Now at this point you might say, well, weren't they talking about Moses in the old covenant? Yes, they were. 
But if they don't see how all of that leads up to Christ and is fulfilled in him, and they proclaim another gospel and another Jesus who does not fulfill all these Old Testament promises, then it's a false religion. And these false ideas function as idols, false gods. That's what these false teachers were clinging on to. Remember, he calls them servants of Satan in 2 Corinthians 11.15. But let me reiterate that the very mention of the church as the temple of God, that itself is Paul's way of once again reminding us that we have entered into the blessings of the new covenant just as God had promised in his word. And that brings us to our second point. Paul commands them not to be unequally yoked by reminding them of God's promises. Look at this text. For we are the temple of God, verses 16 to 18, as God said, that's the language of fulfillment. So what did he say before that has now become a reality? As God said, what? I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul here quotes from at least six different Old Testament passages and he combines them together. So this is a little dense. So you'll have to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. But as you listen to each of these Old Testament texts and see why Paul has put these together, you'll understand what he's doing. He's telling us a story through those texts. And he's going to use that story to make his point. The first text that he quotes from is Exodus 29. Exodus 29. Hereafter, Moses receives instructions from the Lord about how to build the tabernacle and set apart his priests as holy. The Lord then promises to dwell with his people. Exodus 29, verse 45. So just make a note of those texts. Exodus 49, sorry, 29, verse 45. God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Friends, this is a wonderful and gracious thing that the Lord promises his sinful people. You remember in the garden, because of Adam's sin, man could no longer dwell in the presence of a holy God. He was cast out. But God, in keeping with his promises to Abraham, rescued his people out of Egypt, formed them into a nation, entered into a covenant with them at Sinai, and promised to dwell with them in a tabernacle so that they could approach a holy God through sacrifice. The second text is from Leviticus 26, verse 12. And here, after the tabernacle has been set up, this is in the context of the Lord telling his people to keep his commandments as a holy people, the Lord promises blessings for their obedience. This is the scripture passage that was read this morning. And chief among those blessings is the blessing of the Lord's presence. You see, the Lord's presence marks them out as his people. 
Here's what God says. I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. That language of, of God walking among his people ought to remind us of when he walked in the garden with Adam. This is the language of restoration. The third text is from Jeremiah 31 verse 33. 31, 33. Now here, after repeatedly failing to keep God's commandments, God tells his people that he will send them into exile for their rebellion and idolatry. And yet, God in his great mercy promises to restore his people. He would gather them again and make a new covenant with them. And in this new covenant, God would give them new hearts and dwell in their hearts by his spirit. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And listen to this. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, the last time you heard it was at Sinai. And now he's talking about the new covenant. Old covenant, he talks about it. New covenant, he talks about it. And by the time we get to this, you'll hear the same words being spoken of in Revelation 21. When Ezekiel speaks of God's new covenant, he adds this. God says, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. All of this comes to a climax in Ezekiel 37, verse 27, when God says, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And when the prophet Isaiah speaks about the restoration of God's people, when he speaks of God gathering his people, their return from exile, he describes it as a second exodus. When the Lord would redeem his people and comfort them, when he would bear his arm of salvation and call his people out. And just as he called his people out from the midst of Egypt, just as the people were first called to be holy after the Lord brought them out of Egypt in the first exodus, so now the people are also told to be holy as they return from Babylon, carrying the holy vessels off the temple. So this is the fifth text. Isaiah 52 verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, referring to the priests. And Paul, quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, adds this, be separate from them. They turn away from those sinful and idolatrous Babylonian ways. Then I will welcome you, says Paul. Again, this phrase, I will welcome you, is not from Isaiah. It's from Ezekiel. God promises that as he gathers his people to himself, he will accept them or welcome them as a pleasing aroma. Ezekiel 20, verse 41. The sixth text is a combination of 2 Samuel 14 and Isaiah 43, verse 6. It's a combination of 2 Samuel 14 and Isaiah 43, verse 6. So if the previous verse, Isaiah 52, verse 11, reminds us of priests being called to be holy, 2 Samuel, that's the covenant with David, reminds us of kings. If you remember, this was God's promise to David concerning his coming son, that God would be a father to him, 
and that he would be to God as a son. And ultimately, we know that this word was pointing forward to Jesus, David's greater son. And Paul takes that and he combines it with Isaiah 43, verse 6, where again, Isaiah speaking of the second exodus, when God would restore his people from their spiritual exile, he records God saying this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. God promised that he would atone for his people's sins and save people from every nation. And what Paul masterfully does by combining all these Old Testament promises, all these promises of the restoration of the people of Israel, and showing them as the basis for telling the Corinthians to, to separate from these false apostles, what Paul is doing is he's saying this, these promises of restoration have been fulfilled in the church. They've been fulfilled in the church. Therefore, separate yourself from these men. Just as Israel was called to be holy, you too, the Israel of God, all these promises fulfilled in the church, separate yourself from these men. Be holy. The new covenant is in effect. The Spirit is dwelling in your hearts, Corinthians. You have experienced the second exodus. God is not dwelling in physical structures. He's dwelling in His people. The church is the eschatological temple in which God dwells through His Spirit. He has welcomed the Corinthians in Christ. He is their father and they are His sons and daughters. And, and friends, so are we. They have been adopted into the family of God because they have been joined or incorporated into God's Son the Lord Jesus Christ, and so have we. All of God's promises have found their yes and amen in Christ, and it has all come about through Paul's apostolic preaching of the cross. Friend, to be in Christ is to know this God, the God who keeps his promises. To be in Christ is to know this God and to know who you truly are. Friend, if you're not a Christian, then we want you to know this God, the God who keeps his promises. We want you to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Know that this God is holy and he does not wink at sin. But in his great mercy, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to rescue sinners from their sins and unbelief. God has made himself known to us in Jesus Christ so that sinners might come to know him and be reconciled to him through his son. Jesus, the Holy One, the sinless Son of God, died on the cross in the place of sinners, taking God's judgment of sin on himself so that sinners could be forgiven of their sins, given new life, and be reconciled to God as sons and daughters. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead so that sinners could be declared righteous in Christ and receive his spirit. He did this for all who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Only the gospel has the power to banish all unbelief and give you a new identity in Christ. So if you don't know him, come to Christ today. Put your trust in him and no other and you can rejoice in all these promises, just as we do. You can know God as your Father. 
You see what Paul is doing here. He's saying, Corinthians, listen to the promises of God. See how he has accomplished them. We are the temple of God. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God has called a people to himself, and he has set apart for himself not just a few priests who wandered out of Babylon, but a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Beloved, this is our standing. Our identity, our holy calling dictates that we separate ourselves from all that is unclean and unholy. Don't be yoked with these false teachers. The Lord Almighty has welcomed us as sons and daughters. As a holy people, we ought to be pursuing holiness which is proper, which is why in light of these promises, Paul calls them to do this. Chapter 7, verse 1. See, this is nothing but a reiteration, an expansion of what he has already said in verse 14. Look at the text. Since we have these promises, beloved, or therefore, having these promises, being recipients of these precious promises, notice what he calls them, beloved. Of whom? Of God. God has done this for the Corinthians because he loves them and sent his son to redeem them. And Paul says, if this is who we are and this is what God has done for us, what do we do in response? What is our reasonable response of worship? What does he say? Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. In other words, touch no unclean thing. You know, that language of ritual defilement in the Old Testament is now being applied to what? To ungodly doctrine and ungodly people who defile both body and spirit. Beloved, false doctrine will affect how you think. It will affect how you feel, how you speak, how you act. It will affect your priorities. It will affect the decisions you make. For example, if you don't think that Jesus has accomplished everything you need for life and godliness, you will live an exhausting and defeated life trying to establish your own righteousness and your own strength, and you will be powerless against your sin. This is why Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch on his life and his doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.16. And as we trust in God's promises and purify our minds and bodies from false doctrine and sinful thinking, what exactly are we doing? Well, look at the text. We are, says Paul, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, through the everyday process through the everyday process of assessing what we believe and whether or not we're living our lives according to what we believe, we grow in holiness. You see, positionally we are holy, but we are called to live out our holy identity as a church by growing in holiness. And Paul has already introduced us to this wonderful new covenant blessing, hasn't he? 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, bringing it to completion, to our glorification, when we will be just like Christ. 
This is our hope. The Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him does what? Purifies himself as he is pure. Now for the Corinthians, this is what cleansing would have looked like. Think about their situation. This is what cleansing would have looked like. Number one, recognizing that these false apostles were not teaching them the apostolic gospel. Number two, realizing that they were being impressed with whatever their culture was being impressed with. Number three, calling out these men on their disgraceful and ungodly behavior. Number four, separating or unyoking themselves from these men. Number five, acknowledging that God demonstrates his sanctifying power through the weakness of his servants. Number six, repenting of their ways, grieving over their sin, asking the Lord for forgiveness, and in their brokenness, turning to Christ for the comfort of his sanctifying power. And then finally, number seven, earnestly pursuing reconciliation with Paul. See, all of this would demonstrate that the Lord was indeed in their midst. That's what cleansing would have looked like for the Corinthians. What does it look like for us? For us to do that, what does it look like? Number one, it means committing ourselves as a church to growing in holiness. Not just individually, but to be involved in each other's lives, to be concerned about our corporate holiness. Number two, committing to lovingly and biblically intervening when we don't see repentance and reconciliation in each other's lives. Number three, counseling one another with the truths of the gospel so that we help one another evaluate our thoughts and actions in light of those truths and walk by faith and not by sight. Number four, helping one another think Christianly and not culturally so that our faith would rest in the power of God and not in the wisdom of man. Specifically, helping one another see what false belief, what self-centeredness, what idol in our hearts is preventing us from repenting and reconciling and growing in holiness. It's helping each other see that. And number five, to resolve every day, every month, every year, to grow in the knowledge of Christ, to grow in sound doctrine so that we can discern what is false and be prepared as a congregation to discipline unrepentant sin. You know, what could possibly motivate us to do this? What motivation does Paul want for the Corinthians? Look at the text. What's the motivation? The fear of the Lord. Beloved, our holy calling as a congregation is to grow in Christ-likeness in the fear of the Lord. 
We know that we must one day stand before the Lord's judgment seat and give an, give an account. Our hope of glory includes standing before the one who wants his bride, who wants his church to pursue purity. The Lord Jesus wants a pure bride. That hope, that day, ought to cause us to pursue holiness as a church today. You see, there's a final deliverance coming. The new creation has been inaugurated, but it will be consummated upon Christ's return when Jesus will present to himself a spotless bride. Listen to Revelation 21, verses 1 to 3. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. No more chaos, no more sin. And I saw a holy city. That's what we are. A holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to these familiar words that we heard at Sinai, that we heard from Jeremiah talking about the new covenant, and now we hear it at the end of all things. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Beloved, this is where we're going. This is the goal. This is our home. Since we have these promises, since we have this hope, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. We thank you for his special presence in the church. Lord, we marvel at these new covenant blessings, every blessing that we have received in Christ Jesus our Lord because of his finished and all-sufficient work. Lord, we pray that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would not neglect your word, that we would trust and obey you, that we would strive to pursue holiness by your help the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so we come to you, Father, weak and needy. Minister to our hearts. Produce in us deep and meaningful repentance so that we can pursue holiness in Christ, that we would love the beauty of holiness because we love Christ, for he is holy. And so, Lord, help us as we do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.